This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Jennifer Haig, author of five novels, including Mrs. Kimball, Baker Towers, and most recently, Heat and Light. Her short fiction has appeared in The Atlantic, Granta, and The Best American Short Stories, among others. Her novel Heat and Light focuses on the fictional town of Bakerton, Pennsylvania, where oil and gas drilling has just taken hold and the energy boom is taking a toll on the residents. Told from several points of view, the novel highlights a community and its people who are both blessed and cursed by natural resources. We began the discussion speaking about the genesis of the story. You know, this is a a book I wrote because I could not write it. Um, I'd written two earlier books that were set in that same fictionalized town, Bakerton, Pennsylvania, uh, which is very much modeled on the town I grew up in, in Northern Appalachia. Um, this book uh, took me something somewhat by surprise. Um, the first Bakerton book I'd written was um, Baker Towers, And that looked at this town in its heyday when the coal mines were booming in the 40s and 50s. And for a long time, I thought that was the only book I was ever going to write set in that town because it seemed like um, as that book ended, the the boom times ended for Bakerton. And it it seemed like uh, the the town was um, just about ready to to dry up and blow away. So Heat and Light came about in response to what's happening in the news, what's happening in Western Pennsylvania right now, this um, advent of gas drilling and uh, hydrofracking has been the surprise third act for this part of the world that many people had given up for dead. Um, So it was was something I was drawn to as a novelist. I'm always attracted to that moment after which nothing will ever be the same. To me, that's always where a novel begins. And in the case of Heat and Light, it's very obvious what that moment is. The moment these gas drillers come to this town, it is a complete game changer. It it upsets um, relationships between neighbors, between spouses, um, within families. It is uh, completely transformative for that place. This book is so big and I would say has a really complex structure. You have a lot of characters and a lot of points of view. Was it, how long did it take you to write? And are you a very focused person, meaning did you ever want to get up, give up or were you super disciplined? I am a very focused person, um, but I constantly wanted to give up. This was a really hard book for me. It was a five-year book beginning to end. Um, and a large part of that was spent doing research because, you know, it is a very complex subject and I had an awful lot to learn just to be able to write about it competently and accurately. Um, so there was this research piece and then there was a, a very long and tortuous writing journey um, that uh, was really um full of twists and turns and unexpected developments. Um, When I started writing the book, I I conceived of a much smaller story. I thought it really was just a book about about fracking and and how it changes this place. In the process of writing it, um, I understood that the story was much larger than fracking. 
that the fracking is just the latest chapter in this very long, this long history Pennsylvania has as an energy state. And I, the, the final structure of the book reflects that. It begins in the 1850s with the drilling of the first uh, oil well in the entire world. It was drilled in Western Pennsylvania. That's the beginning of, of Pennsylvania's history as an energy state. Um, after that, there was 150, mile, 150 years of coal mining. There was strip mining. There was the Three Mile Island nuclear disaster. So it's this, this story of energy and Pennsylvania's relationship with it has been ongoing for a very long time. And fracking is just the latest chapter. So did you have a certain point of view about fracking or the energy industry in Pennsylvania when you began? And did that change at all when you ended? I had a lot of opinions going into the writing of the book. And um, as I learned more about the issue, I realized how ill-informed my opinions were, that nothing was as simple as I thought it was going to be. Uh, part of the reason the book has so many point of view characters and this very complicated structure is that as I learned more about the drilling issue, I realized there was no way to do justice to this very complicated subject without giving time to characters on all sides of the argument. So, um, you know, there are people in this book who lease their mineral rights and feel like they've won the lottery when their property is drilled. There are people who refuse to lease their mineral rights. There are, um, you know, geologists. There is a gas company executive. There are dairy farmers. There's an activist. Um, and as I was writing each of these point of view characters, I found myself temporarily siding with that person. Uh, so I'm, when I was writing about Lauren Trexler, the environmental activist, I was completely on his side of the argument and agreed with him completely. Even if I knew that a month later I was going to be writing a different character who had an entirely different perspective on the issue. Um, to me, that's the magic of point of view. It's that when I'm writing a particular point of view character, um, I give my full allegiance to that character. And it's, it's why there are so many of them in this book. It was the only way to render the issue accurately. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Jennifer Haig, author of the novel Heat and Light. This interview was recorded via Skype. It sounds like when you began writing this, you were really interested in, in what energy does to a town, were there other questions nagging at you that propelled you onward with this book? Well, you know, one question leads to another. So I guess when I'm writing a novel, I don't think about plot so much as causality, how one action leads to the next action leads to the next action. So um, once I've written a certain amount about each of the characters and given them a chance to interact with each other, then the story sort of continues on its own. It's, it's, it's almost like a machine propelling itself forward because you're just, you're just playing out the string. You're extrapolating the consequences of the actions people are taking and, and how they're responding to each other's actions. One of the things that came up continuously in the book, uh, something that you went back to that I'm really interested in and your cr curiosity in it, 
was the bubble boy, the boy in the mm-hmm. bubble. Can you talk about how you alighted on that, what it meant for you, and talking about it in the book? Sure. Um, so uh, the, the bubble boy, um, the, the film, uh, The Boy in the Plastic Bubble, was a childhood favorite of one of the characters in the book named Wesley. Um, Wesley, as a small child, uh, was a very indoorsy kid. He was um, very shy, very attached to his mother. He was homeschooled, not good with other kids. And watching that film as a child, he thought the life of the bubble boy was sort of the perfect life. And it's it's how he imagined um, his ideal life, that he would live in this kind of safe, contained environment. When we revisit Wesley as a grown man many years later, um, he has developed a terminal illness and he's looking back on his childhood self and his fascination with the boy in the bubble and really feeling the stinging irony of that, how as an adult, he would love nothing more than be able to step out of his bubble um, and interact with the physical world in a way that his health no longer permits him to. Do you think once you, it's some metaphor for something bigger in this book in terms of once you sign your deed away, you're sort of trapped in this world where you don't control the the walls kind of? You know, I never thought of that. I never thought of it as a metaphor. Um, But it's certainly true that um, a lot of these characters do experience a loss of control. Um, In in a way that surprised me, uh, this became a book about machines. Uh, I write a lot about the Three Mile Island nuclear accident and about the reactor at Three Mile Island. I write about the machinery involved with hydrofracking, which is quite complicated and um, fascinating in its way. And um, as I I spent all this time learning about these machines and writing about these machines, it became clear to me that that this sort of um, economic mechanism involved with gas drilling is itself a big complicated machine. And a lot of these people unwittingly become cogs in this machine. It's interesting, the role of machines in this whole fracking industry. They shoot all these chemicals and everything into the land, and they take over a landscape in a way that announces what's going on before you necessarily know, especially out west here. We have a lot of it not too far from here where you're going down the highway and they, they're like these big metal ghosts that haunt the landscape. It's a little more concealed in Pennsylvania, um, so you might not see it until you drive up upon it. Um, Western Pennsylvania is pretty mountainous. There are lots of narrow, windy roads. There is a lot of forest. Um, so it's, it's maybe a little bit more concealed. But, um, you know, th- without a doubt, it, it transfigures the landscape in a really shocking way. And, um, you know, that that's part of what um, made me want to write about this phenomenon. I grew up in Western Pennsylvania during the coal mining years. I grew up in a little mining town. And um, at the time I was a kid, in the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of strip mining going on. So uh, that is, you know, part of my childhood frame of reference, what strip mining did to the land in Pennsylvania also very dramatic. You actually see that in Heat and Light. One of the characters, Darren, um, remembers um, the the land that was sort of destroyed by strip mining. As kids, we called it the strippins. 
and and that's what I call it in the book, the strippins, these these huge parcels of land that were um, either not at all backfilled or backfilled very clumsily and look like these totally unnatural landscapes. And so the land really has been forever changed in Pennsylvania by energy exploration. And that's something that's continuing to happen now with fracking. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Jennifer Haig, author of the novel Heat and Light. This interview was recorded via Skype. One of the things that I really loved about the book was the pressure that neighbor can put on neighbor. You portrayed it really well. For instance, if you have three tracts of land and the two neighbors on the outside want to drill this, you still need to have the neighbor on the in the middle agree to have some of the piping go through their property. And you wrote about that relationship in the book. I mean, it's really at the heart of the conflict in the book. If you own land um, in this part of the world that's ex- large enough and in exactly the right spot, it's true that you stand to make an awful lot of money by leasing your mineral rights. But the fact of the matter is that you might be making a profit on this, but all your neighbors who have not signed their land away are also paying the price, that everybody is living with the noise and the road construction and the devastation of the landscape and the risks to the water supply. Everybody in the community is affected by this, yet only a few people are actually making a profit. So this is the source of the tension, really, that you know people who don't stand to make any money um, feel resentful that they are still, you know, bearing the brunt of this gas exploration. Um, it's complicated by the fact that Western Pennsylvania has not had a lot of good news in the last 30 years. Um, I was a kid when the coal mine started shutting down in my part of the world. And by the time I graduated from high school, it was all over. People were moving out of these towns in droves. The town shrank to you know, a quarter of the size it had been when I was a child. Uh, and the place really contracted very quickly in a very alarming way. So the people who stayed in that part of the world lived through that process and you know, have been dealing with this financial hardship for probably 30 years now. And so when a few people have a chance to sign away their mineral rights and make some real money, you can see why it's very hard for them to say no. That's really the source of the tension in the book. Do you feel like that was a tension that your characters were able to resolve? No, no, I don't think so. You know, the, the way the story unfolds, um, the lesson the characters learn is that they are all um, sort of in the grip of this larger machine. And this is something that I have found to be true in talking to people who've leased their mineral rights for gas drilling. The average person doesn't understand the degree to which this is a market-driven phenomenon. So for most people, you think you, you lease your mineral rights, um, you, you get your payment, they start drilling, and then you, you get your payment every month. And you think it's just going to happen like clockwork. And nobody ever explains to you that it really comes down to supply and demand. It's been come as a real shock to a lot of people in Pennsylvania in the last couple of years that as gas and oil prices have tanked, drilling has ground to a halt there. 
this is a very expensive technology. It's very expensive to do this, and it's simply not worth the company's while when gas prices are this low. So um, what's happened in the book, and it's it actually weirdly um, was kind of prophetic because I I wrote it before this actually happened, and um, in the in the gas and oil economy, but but uh, prices tanking sort of froze everything. So it's it's not really that anything got resolved. It's just that um, the the whole question is in remission for the moment. Um, but it hasn't gone away, and as the prices go back go back up as they certainly will. It's a cyclical business. Um, these same questions are going to arise. Do you think they, the same questions will arise in the sense that today versus maybe some of the first families who admitted the oil companies onto their land know more about fracking, the political climate is, is more um, advocating against fracking because of the chemicals and what it does to the water. So do you think that people are less conflicted and it's easier to say no when the company comes? Or do you think that the economy is such that people will say yes, given the risks? A lot of people want this, to be perfectly honest. And a lot of people are going to say yes, no no matter the risks. So I, I don't think the issue has become clearer. I do think that people are becoming better informed about it. Uh, what you saw happening in the early days of um, of gas leases, a lot of people signed a lease before they had gotten legal counsel, before they had talked to anybody else who had signed a lease. Um, so a lot of people just took the first offer that came along and uh, had they waited longer and um, asked for more, they would have made a lot more. So um, what I've seen happen, particularly in Ohio, um, which has has the, the Utica shell has been has been a li- been drilled a little bit later. Um, they have learned from what happened in Pennsylvania, and uh, landowners are banding together into these landowners coalitions and uh, essentially writing their own gas leases that the companies have to either take or leave. But they're taking more control of the process. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Jennifer Haig, author of the novel Heat and Light. This interview was recorded via Skype. Tell me about the role of faith in all this. You had Jess, who had her kind of faith, who was the preacher. Is faith important in these towns, or is it important around this, or is it just something that you're very interested in? Well, you know, I I never write about religion on purpose, but I do think it's a big part of a lot of people's lives. And and I do find it strikingly absent from a lot of contemporary literature, which is interesting to me. Um, I, a lot of the writers I know are very secular people. I am myself a secular person. And so it's easy to forget that not everybody thinks this way. And for many, many people, it is integral to the way you experience life. It's integral to the way you, you know, you, you walk through the world. And the, of the characters in Heat and Light, a few of them are, are people of faith, people for whom that is central. Not all the characters, but, but a few of them. You also highlight some of the other problems that can come in with oil and gas, such as we talked about pitting neighbor against neighbor, but also meth that was part of, uh, of your book which is an interesting side effect or consequence of this. Yeah, you know, 
I was surprised by the degree to which this became a novel about addiction. I, I didn't conceive of that um, when, when I first thought about writing the book. It was something that developed in the process of writing it. And I don't know that it's a consequence of gas drilling in any way. It has more to do with the kind of economic dislocation that has been happening in Bakerton for a very long time, long before the drillers came to town. There was um, an exploding drug problem in this region. That, that in fact, is true in Western Pennsylvania, in coal mining country, a lot of those towns that have lost their main employers, that, that people have lost their reason for being in a certain way. The town has lost its mission. And um, predictably, people find ways to self-medicate. Um, so, you know, there are a number of the characters in the book who um, who either have a history of using drugs or alcohol or are actively using drugs and alcohol. Um, the, the central family in the book, the Devlins, um, a generation ago was a coal mining family. You have the, the father, Dick Devlin, was a coal miner for 30 years. When his job disappeared, he and his brother went in together and bought a tavern. Uh, Dick's two sons um, also are working in the addiction business in a way. His older son, Rich, is a, is a corrections officer at a prison full of drug offenders. And his younger son, Darren, is a recovering heroin addict and a professional drug counselor. So here's this family that a generation ago was a mining family. Now they're all in the addictions business. And that just reflects the reality of, of what has happened to some of these towns. I think every novel I've written has been, um, to some extent, a novel about class. And, and I think Heat and Light is even more so than the others. Um, we're not very good at talking about class in America. We're just learning how to talk about race. We're, I think, decades away from really having an honest conversation about class. And yet we absolutely do have a caste system in this country, um, we like to believe that we're an egalitarian society, um, that we're a classless society, but that that is far from the truth. Um, the issue of class is terribly important in this debate around fracking. Um, and it's something that I've become acutely aware of in talking to my friends in here in Boston or in New York, say, um, who for the most part are very educated people um, are uh, politically liberal, and two a one think fracking is a terrible idea. It's just an environmental catastrophe in the making. Uh, people in Boston can't fathom why any community would consent to have this done. When I go back to Western Pennsylvania, the conversation is entirely different. People there um, see it in in basic economic terms that if you have this piece of land. Um, you can make a lot of money by leasing the rights and you get to keep the land and keep farming it. Well, my God, why wouldn't you do it? Um, and, and I realized that people on both sides of this issue tend to see it in very black and white terms, but that's largely a function of our own class background. And, and I think your opinion about fracking is probably a pretty good indicator of your socioeconomic status and, and you know, where your people come from. Um, so that's a lot of what I'm exploring in this book, how this, this gas controversy looks different depending on um, the circumstances you're living in.
You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Jennifer Haig, author of the novel Heat and Light. This interview was recorded via Skype. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Heat and Light is my fifth novel. And uh, one thing I have learned about my own process for writing novels is that um, in every case, I hit on two or three touchstones, other novels that um, are really lighting my path for me as I write my novel that that are sort of um, inspirations or models for me and, and kind of help me find the voice and the shape of the book. And those influences change for every book I've written. For Heat and Light, um, the most important of those influences was Don DeLillo's masterpiece, Underworld, uh, my favorite of his novels. So um, I'm going to read a passage from Underworld. This was particularly important to me because in Heat and Light, I'm working for the first time with an omniscient voice. It's something I'd never done before and really did not know how to do. So it it took me a long time to figure out how to do it. And um, I think DeLillo is the master at this. Um, So I'm going to read uh, an omniscient passage from Underworld. There's a man in the upper deck leafing through a copy of the current issue of Life. There's a man on 12th Street in Brooklyn who has attached a tape machine to his radio so he can record the voice of Russ Hodges broadcasting the game. The man doesn't know why he's doing this. It's just an impulse, a fancy. It's like hearing the game twice. It's like being young and being old. And this will turn out to be the only known recording of Russ's famous account of the final moments of the game. The game and its extensions, the woman cooking cabbage, the man who wishes he could be done with drink. They are the game's remoter soul, connected by the pulsing voice on the radio, joined to the word of mouth that passes the score along the street and to the fans who call the special phone number and the crowd at the ballpark that becomes the picture on television, people the size of Minute Rice and the game as rumor and conjecture and inner history. There's a 16-year-old in the Bronx who takes his radio up to the roof of his building so he can listen alone, a Dodger fan slouched in the gloaming, and he hears the account of the misplayed bunt and the fly ball that scores the tying run, and he looks out over the rooftops, the tar beaches with their clotheslines and pigeon coops and splatted condoms, and he gets the cold creeps. The game doesn't change the way you sleep or wash your face or chew your food. It changes nothing but your life. Can you share a passage that you wrote? Maybe it was something that was really tricky to write or changed a lot from the first draft. And this relates to the um, the DeLillo excerpt I just read. This is one of those sections of Heat and Light where I was struggling with the omniscient voice, trying to learn how to do it. There's um, a passage in the middle of the book Uh, that deals with the Three Mile Island nuclear disaster, which is something I remember vividly from my own childhood. Um, So I'm writing about a family that lives near Three Mile Island as the accident is happening. 15,000 people live within a mile of the plant. They've seen the miracle only from a distance, the four cement cooling towers, massive and bell-shaped, exhaling steam. To the 15,000, the thing has not yet happened. Showers are taken, breakfast eaten, the Remington electric shaver, the Amana touch radar range. 
A feed salesman is driving to work, the plant visible in his rear view. He notes absently that no steam rises from the towers. Then he blows his nose and takes a drist in. His son brought home a cold from where the salesman can't imagine. The kid is homeschooled, shy of the neighborhood children. Left to his own devices, he would never leave the house. This morning is no different. The boy Wesley Peacock plays a board game in his pajamas, cross-legged on the living room floor. The game involves building a complicated mousetrap, a Rube Goldberg-like creation. There are 23 plastic parts in red, blue, green, and gold. He rolls the die and lands on a white space, then adds the plastic crank to the trap. The box says two to four players, but the clever only child learns to ignore such instructions. Wesley takes a turn for the blue mouse, a turn for the green one. He's used to playing against himself. Where do you write? I have a writing studio that I rent. I'm a complete failure at writing at home. There's technically no reason I shouldn't be able to do this. I, I don't have kids. I don't have any interruptions. I have a, a house all to myself during the day. And yet I need to go somewhere else. Um, I learned uh, early on that there's an unpleasant corollary to working at home, and that is you live at work. And once I realized that, I decided I didn't want to live at work. I wanted a separate space to get up and go to every day. So that's what I do. What do you do or where do you go when you to get away from writing? I play with my dog. I think it's really important for a writer to have a dog. And uh, I don't know how you write without one. Um, my dog has absolutely no interest in my writing. Uh, she doesn't care about this. It's, it is the most effective way for me to change the channel when I'm sort of lost in my own thoughts. Um, throw a ball to a dog. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I I really don't show early drafts to anyone. Um, by the time anybody sees it, it's probably a second or a third draft. Um, I have a classmate. Uh, I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop, and um, one of my classmates there has been my reader for many, many years. We've been showing each other our, our early drafts for probably 15 years, and he's still my go-to reader. And how have you dealt with rejection? Not very well. It's it's not easy, and it doesn't get easier. And for a writer, it, it never stops. And what is your favorite word? I love the word evening. You know, we, we use the word all the time, and we never think about what it really means. But it has, it, the literal meaning is the evening of the light. And um, it's evening right now in Boston. I'm looking out the window and I'm seeing the light evening. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Jennifer Haig, author of the novel Heat and Light. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The First Draft theme music was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.